Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking about back-to-school and vaccination policies with Dr. Preeti Malani, Chief Health Officer and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Michigan, and Dr. Tina Tan, Professor of Pediatrics at the Feinberg School of Medicine, Northwestern University, and a Pediatric Infectious Diseases Attending, Medical Director of the International Patient Services Program, Co-Director of the Pediatric Travel Medicine Clinic, and Director of the International Adoptee Clinic at Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Tan, a common refrain we hear is that COVID-19 doesn't affect children as severely as it does adults. As a pediatric infectious diseases specialist, what is your perspective? SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, can infect persons of any age. And in general, the majority of children who are infected have had asymptomatic or mild disease. However, children under one year of age and those with underlying conditions are at increased risk for more severe disease if they are infected. Since the start of the pandemic, there have been almost 4.1 million children infected with COVID-19, which accounts for about 14.2% of all COVID-19 cases. Over 18,000 of these children have required hospitalization, and there have been over 350 deaths. There have also been over 4,000 cases of multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, that have been reported to the CDC, with some of these children being very seriously ill. Many of these children were reported as having either an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic case of acute COVID-19. So there really is no way to predict at this time which child will develop MISC after having been infected with COVID-19. So yes, in the majority of cases, children either have no symptoms or mild symptoms, but there are children that can become quite ill when they become infected with COVID-19. At this time, COVID-19 vaccines are not yet authorized for children under age 12. This means that many students returning to school in the coming weeks remain unvaccinated. What measures should be in place in order to protect them? So with the increased transmissibility and increased circulation of the Delta variant of COVID-19, which accounts now for 83% of the COVID-19 cases today in the United States, and with children under 12 years of age being unvaccinated, and only 30% of children between 12 and 17 years of age being vaccinated, with some teachers and staff still being unvaccinated, the measures that need to be in place in order for children to safely return to in-person learning include the protective measures that were used prior to COVID-19 vaccine availability. So these include universal mask wearing regardless of vaccination status, physical or social distancing with deaths at least three feet apart, cohorting of students and teachers into smaller groups, good hand hygiene, having protocols in place if someone becomes ill or tests positive for COVID-19, and good ventilation and indoor spaces. These measures have all been shown to be very effective at preventing the spread of COVID-19 in the school setting. 
And what is the current estimate on when the COVID-19 vaccine may be authorized for younger age groups? So at this time, the current estimate of when vaccination might be available for children under 12 years of age is either at the end of this year or the beginning of 2022. The American Academy of Pediatrics recently issued a recommendation that children wear masks in school regardless of their vaccination status. And you also shared this recommendation just a few minutes ago. This is somewhat different from the current guidance from CDC. Dr. Tan, can you explain the differences and what would you recommend for children about to return to school with regard to masking? The differences in the recommendations that the American Academy of Pediatrics has regarding mask wearing has to do with several factors that I just mentioned. One is that children under 12 years of age are not eligible for vaccination at this time, and these children can become infected with COVID-19 and can transmit it to others. We know that only 30% of children between 12 and 17 years of age have been fully vaccinated, which means that the majority of children in this age group continue to be susceptible to being infected with COVID-19 and spreading it to those individuals around them. There are still teachers and staff in schools that have chosen not to be vaccinated and the increasing spread of the Delta variant across the United States and its increased transmissibility increases the risk of infection for, for persons that are unvaccinated. And because of all these different factors and the major goal being of increasing the safety of children returning to in-person school, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends universal mask wearing for everyone regardless of vaccination status. And I think that is something that is very, very smart to do given the current situation that is known about the vaccination status of children. What impact has COVID-19 had on pediatric care overall? COVID-19 has had a major negative impact on the ability to deliver pediatric care and on children's ability to present for care. And this has included a significant decline in the number of children considered to be up to date with their routine vaccinations. Even though this has improved over time, the numbers are still significantly lower, especially in the adolescent population. And what this does is that it places children at risk for vaccine preventable diseases such as pertussis or measles. Children are still not presenting for their routine wellness checkups so that conditions tend to be more severe at the time that they're presenting and most significantly, there has been a major increase in mental health issues, especially in the adolescent population, with a significant increase in children with severe depression and suicidal ideations, as well as worsening in other pre-existing conditions, such as ADHD. You know, the pandemic has had all these unintended consequences, but the summertime is a good time for parents to get their children caught up on their immunizations and to present for their well-child checks. IDSA invites you to kick off ID Week 2021 with Chasing the Sun, COVID-19 Beyond the Horizon. This global event begins Wednesday, September 29 at 10 a.m. Eastern. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and other partners have provided funds to offset the cost of attending Chasing the Sun, which gives you access to health authorities from around the world offering unique global perspectives and data on COVID-19. Register now at idweek.org.
Dr. Milani, let's turn to you. As someone who works on a university campus, tell us about the differences in returning to school for the college population compared to younger age groups. Well, Amanda, college campuses, as we know, are really about togetherness, congregate living, roommates, crowds, football games. So it's not just classrooms, but it's social settings and really the living and learning environment. It's where you eat, sleep, where you have fun, where you study. And we saw this play out last year, even with testing and masking and attempts at social distancing, it was really impossible to prevent outbreaks on most campuses. And this is in contrast to younger students. I think the K through 12 space is different for a lot of reasons. And again, school children are living among adults, not with each other. In general, there are some shared elements, but there are these differences. And of course, the biggest difference, which was touched on by Dr. Tan, is that College students are eligible for vaccination, so we're not powerless against this virus. Speaking of vaccines, do most universities have mandatory vaccine policies, and do you see social pressure to get vaccinated? You know, the requirements are patchy, and I wouldn't say that it's most universities and colleges, but many have policies to either encourage or require COVID vaccination, and, and frankly, that number is increasing each day. And with vaccination policies, it's not just about the individual's risk, but it's about the entire population. And it's not just about COVID, but it's about preventing disruptions to classes, for example. And it's also about keeping vulnerable individuals safe. Something that has been true all along is that college campuses reflect risk in the community, and it's not going to be safer on a college campus than it is in the surrounding community. But those campuses that are highly vaccinated are the most likely to not have major disruptions related to COVID outbreaks and clusters. And in terms of social pressure, I do think there's social pressure. And frankly, it probably goes both ways. And I, you know, I just feel like I have to add that there have now been hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine given all over the world with only a very small number of serious safety concerns. So it's not too late to get vaccinated for people who have remained concerned and are, are waiting. And ultimately, even with some unknowns, getting a COVID vaccine is going to be safer than getting COVID. You mentioned that campuses that are highly vaccinated are less likely to have outbreaks. So do you think that higher rates of vaccination among college students mean that other infection prevention policies, such as masking and social distancing, can be relaxed? You know, the easy answer is yes. If you can collect information and verify high vaccination rates, and I'm I'm talking, you know, 90, 95 percent or even higher, you probably can safely relax some of the policies like masking and social distancing. You know, the classrooms are complicated because it's a longer amount of time. It's a it's a mixed population. But one of the things that's really very clear is that the pandemic keeps changing. And what is happening today may be very different in the in the coming days. And understanding what's happening in the surrounding community is very important. And it's unclear what classes are going to look like. And my hope is that many of the living learning settings, the libraries and residence halls will look as normal as possible. But COVID means that things are changing. And, you know, everything we know so far is that vaccines prevent severe illness, hospitalizations and death, and also make transmission less likely. But I think we need to keep an eye on the emerging data on breakthrough infections. So more to come. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID-19LearningNetwork.org. 
Can you talk about the implications for international students returning to campus? This has been a difficult issue for international students. It's it's complicated because vaccination is not available everywhere in the world yet. And most universities that have requirements or are encouraging vaccination or have requirements for certain subsets of students recognize vaccines that are authorized for use in the United States. So by the US FDA and also by the World Health Organization as meeting the policies and requirements. The things that we have been suggesting to our international students is don't wait to get vaccinated, You know, get a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as it's available to you. And depending on the type of vaccine you get, you might want to get additional vaccination when you arrive in the United States if needed. And this gets at some, some difficulties because some of the vaccines that are available are not yet recognized by WHO and, and certainly not emergency use authorization. But I'm hopeful that most universities and colleges will make special arrangements to make sure that their international students are, are, are taken care of in this regard and are vaccinated when they arrive. And many of those individuals, they might need to have other mitigation measures such as weekly testing and and masking. But again, I think things are changing even in our country right now. It may be that it's not just international students that are going to be needing to do those things. And what impact do you think all of this will have on the upcoming athletic season? As as you know, I'm a, a big fan of my team, Michigan Athletics. And last year, the Big Ten, and Dr. Tan is also at a Big Ten institution, the Big Ten delayed the start of the season. It really felt impossible particularly to play football safely with the large teams and the travel. And then this move to frequent testing on a nearly daily basis and mitigation measures, it meant really rethinking how you practice, how you train, how you compete. You know, there were outbreaks and the outbreaks were often from social gatherings, not travel, not competition. And it's a very different situation this year because of vaccination. You know, I'm hopeful that the uh, athletic season will be a safe one. And it will be one that is enjoyable. There'll be fans that, this year. But again, things are changing even in our country as we record this with numbers going up in many communities. So in general, outdoor activities remain safe. If you're vaccinated, things are safe. But this guidance could change in coming weeks. And so again, for parents and families and students, get vaccinated. It'll keep you safe. It'll keep everyone around you safe. And hopefully you won't end up First of all, getting sick, but you also not have to be quarantined if you get exposed. And I think that that's a a big consideration. Dr. Tan, anything you'd like to add? If you're eligible for vaccination or if your patients are eligible for vaccinations, please get vaccinated because that is the best way not only to protect yourself, but also to protect the individuals around you who may not be eligible for vaccination at this time. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Milani and Tan for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jezik. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.